Again, we'll be in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. And once you have arrived there, if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6 says this, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be, you, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before the pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. I want to welcome you here. My name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, if it's your first time, I want to say thanks for joining us. Hopefully someone has grabbed you, shared with you a little bit about who we are and what we're trying to do here in this community. Um, if you do not have a home church, I just want to make mention of this. There should be a connect card in the uh, backseat pocket, and we would love to say, uh, fill one of those out. We want to get to know you. We'd love for you to consider uh, joining us here at Providence. Um, like Ty said, we've been in a sermon series since the beginning of January uh, on the Sermon on the Mount called Kingdom and King. And we've been walking through Jesus' words in the longest sermon and maybe the most influential sermon that Jesus ever preached in his life and ministry on earth, uh, which is in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and we will be starting chapter 7 this morning. I want to encourage you, if it is your first time or you've only been coming the last couple of weeks, all of our podcasts are online. Because this is one sermon and a portion of text, these sermons kind of file on with one another. And so Jesus' words, they, it flows into the next stanza, into the next stanza, and into the next stanza. And so just real briefly, I want to kind of uh, connect and cover where have we been and then where are we headed. <clears throat> so we've talked about things like uh, the characteristics of a disciple. Like Jesus, if this is his kingdom manifesto, if he is the king who has come to exert authority and to lead us, uh, he starts by giving us the Beatitudes, telling us what the, what the characteristics of disciples are. Uh, then he goes on to calling us the, the salt and light of the earth. Um, and he says, these are some of the patterns, the rhythms, the behaviors of citizens of my kingdom. And so he starts to, he addresses things that are kind of controversial. He talks about divorce. He talks about promises. He talks about lust. He talks about anger. Um, he goes in and, and discusses spiritual disciplines like prayer and fasting, consistently giving this juxtaposition of external righteousness versus true inward transformation. And he basically is continually saying, the people who will be my disciples will not be fixated on what they externally portray, but will be fixated on submitting and being internally transformed to be something different, not just to do different things for everyone else. And so there's this kind of uh, there's, there's cadence to Jesus' words, and he, at the very end of chapter number 7, it says that those who are listening, that they're just wowed by Jesus' authority. That when Jesus talks, he doesn't talk like the scribes or the Pharisees. He doesn't point back to Moses' law. He says, this is what Moses' law said, but I say unto you. With this authoritative stance of this is what Moses actually meant. This is what, this is what Moses actually said, and this is the heart of the law. Jesus continues to kind of bring that authoritative stance and we're kind of entering into the final lap of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter number seven. Uh, this text, and I, I you know, taught in the nine, and even, even teaching it, starting to realize, this is a really relational portion of scripture, and it's a really practical portion of scripture, particularly in the way that the people of God are meant to relate, not just to each other, but to the world around them. 
And so we're, take, we're taking this turn, and, and I, I added a few notes in in between gatherings that I hope might be helpful that we're going to put on the screens. As Jesus leads us into uh, how are we supposed to relate, what is it going to look like for us to relate in, as citizens of the kingdom together and then to those on the outside. So let's pray. Let me, let's just pray for a moment, ask God's help as we read the word, uh, that he would illuminate the truth of the word. Um, and that he ultimately would stand forth and make a case that he is worthy of our worship this morning. Amen? Let's pray. Father, um, I'm so glad that I don't have to get up and try to give my best advice. I'm so glad, Lord, that you've given us your word, and that, Jesus, you died so that we might actually be able to read it and find life there in you. And so we ask for your help not to go to your word in the hopes that in, in mere letters we would find life, but that your word would lead us to you, Jesus, that we could find life and hope in you. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Admonish us where we need to be admonished. Bring life where there needs to be life and hope. And Holy Spirit, we just pray that the words that you long to communicate to us would land on fertile hearts this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Jesus kicks off verses one and two in chapter number seven like this. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Okay, this is a very common uh, portion of scripture. It's why this is gonna be highly practical, but also why we have to do so much work this morning. Because with the, the size of the crowd right now, there's, got, there's probably one of us that has like a tattoo, God, only God can judge me in here, Right? All right, if that's you, it's all good. You don't have to look at anybody. Just look straight ahead, okay? But the likelihood that we've either heard that, we got a tattooed on our body, or it's like in old English on the back of your car right now, a sticker decal, because that's, this text is often used when someone says something to you or points out or highlights an area of deficiency or sin in your life, the response is, judge not lest you be judged, brother. Or we go to the next few verses, right, which is like, oh, I'm, I'm glad that you noticed the speck in my eye. Let's start talking about the telephone pole in your eye now, right? That's where this text is used often. And so when we talk about judgment, all, a lot of times we're pointing here and saying, I don't want anybody to be able to speak into my life. I don't want anyone to be able to point out anything that's wrong or, or awry in me because ultimately they're too judgy. How many of you have ever heard that? Maybe you've said it yourself. I know I felt this way at times. Like the church, I love Jesus. I just don't love the church because the church is just full of judgy people right? They're just all judgy. And, and sometimes what we mean by that is someone maybe lovingly came alongside you and told you something that you didn't want to hear about yourself, and therefore they're just too judgy. I'm tired of people judging me. Only God's supposed to judge me. Even Jesus said it, right? And so here's the hard work that we have to do this morning, is we got to avoid two, uh, a ditch on either side of the road. And we really got to define this word judgment. We got to start there, and then we'll start to understand what Jesus is saying here in this text after we do that. So here are the, the ditch on either side of the road. One is, I've already mentioned it, this idea that this scripture means that we should just reject all accountability wholesale. That really what Jesus is saying here is that no one can call me out on my sinful behavior or lovingly speak the truth to me because only God can do that. The problem, that sounds good until you read the rest of the Bible. And we know that the Bible and scripture interpret scripture, right? So you can't just take one isolated scripture and say, that's my life verse, to the exclusion of everything else. Okay, there's been some dangerous things in the whole world that have happened because people do that. They take one verse, they say, this is it. This is the whole message of God. No, if you read the whole counsel of scripture, we are constantly called 
to speak the truth in love to one another. In fact, I, I, I read this to the nines, so I'll read it to you guys. It, there, are, there is this tension about judgment, even in the New Testament, where you feel like there's contradictory ideals. Here's one example from 1 Corinthians. This is Paul speaking. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to the light the things that are now hidden in darkness, and he will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So part one of Paul in 1 Corinthians is, hey, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Leave it to the Lord. That seems to mirror Matthew chapter 7. Now fast forward one chapter later, 1 Corinthians 5, 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? That is rhetorical. He means yes. That seems contradictory, does it not? Don't pronounce judgment before the time. Make sure you judge in the people inside the church. That's who you're supposed to judge. So on one end, don't judge Christians. On another end, judge Christians. What does it mean? It's important to define judgment and what we mean by judgment. And then we start to parse out the text from what Christ is really after. So I want to I define judgment. It's really hard to do so. You can go through and you can do the, you know, the Greek study, look at the word, you'll find there's like three or four different uh, definitions and they kind of all parse out. I think the most helpful way to do this is just focus on two major types of judgment that you see in the Bible. I'm going to call them cosmic and civil judgments. The first one is cosmic judgment. Very simply put, God's judgment and response to sin is the cosmic judgment. That from Genesis all the way to Revelation, God judges sin and he punishes sin. From In Genesis, you see that the the, the sin enters the world through Eve's disobedience and Adam's disobedience. And so the response, God's judgment, is to push them out of the garden. And then to put an angel at the, at the entrance of the garden and say, you'll never come back in here because you've done the thing that, you, that I told you not to do. The one commandment. Right? So the judgment of, of the people of God is exile. Or they are now outside of the presence of God in this way. On and on you can go throughout the scriptures, there's these ideas of judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah, you guys have heard the story, right? Lot's wife runs, she turns back, turns into a pillar of salt. You get sulfur and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah based on their sin. You get uh, Egypt, the judgment of Egypt. Egypt had all this child sacrifice, evil that they had done. They were enslaving the Israelites, and then God, in his judgment, brings ten plagues on the people of Egypt, in order to redeem his people out of the land of Egypt. And you can continually read the Old Testament. What you'll find is God's cosmic response to sin is judgment, saying this is what is evil and this is what is right. And when evil is done, then justice must be rendered, right? That's what you see in the Old Testament. On the flip side, there's something called what I'll call civil judgment. And you see this in the life of Moses. When Moses has two million Israelites, check this out, walking through the desert together, and they have all sorts of disputes among one another. Now, you guys can jive with this, right? If you have kids and you have more than one kid, how often do they have disputes that they want you to settle, right? And depending upon the age of your kids, maybe they want you to settle and maybe they don't. Maybe one of your kids likes to settle it on his own score. But nonetheless, they bring you their disputes. Think of Moses being the singular leader of the children of Israel, and they have millions of people coming to him to settle the disputes. And Moses' responsibility was to judge he was supposed to give judgment as to what was right and what was wrong. Call balls and strikes for the children of Israel, ultimately. And this is why in Exodus 20, God's bring, God brings his law and he lays out his law so that there can be righteous judgments in a civil way. Okay? So you have both cosmic and civil that are working their way out. So now here when Jesus says that we ought not judge, we got to look at it through that lens. And here, I, I wrote this down into, into points because I think this can be confusing if we're not careful. Point number one is this. 
We never engage with judgment to non-believers. Never. Whether it be cosmic or civil. Okay? Let me explain to you why. Number one, cosmic judgment is reserved for God always, always, always. You and I don't get to sit on that throne. That's why you and I don't just start slinging plagues around, okay? We don't do that. You ever, you ever think like the moment where James and John, okay, are talking with Jesus? Jesus shares the gospel with a group of people. They reject him, and James and John says, give us the power. We'll call down fire from heaven on them. <laughs> they want the power to cosmic judgment. Jesus is like, you guys are crazy. Like, you're nuts. No, we're not going to do that. There's not going to be cosmic judgment given through the hands of you and I. It's always reserved for God. And toward a non-believer, not even civil judgment is meant for you and I. Here's what I mean. When you try to legislate morality on those who do not know Christ, it never goes well. Or to put it another way, when you try to sanctify that which has not been justified, you are doing more harm than good. When you're trying to come alongside and say, you need to change your life, you need to clean up your ways, you need to change what you're doing here, here, and here, and you're not pointing to the loving Savior who changes the heart, what you're doing is like the Pharisees, you're creating religious proselytes, not Christians. You're not seeing conversion, you're, t- you're telling people that ultimately the gospel is about external behavior modification, and that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is about regeneration of the heart that comes only through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then and only then do you see obedience as something that's desirable and not something to be rebelled. But when we try to say, no, what we need to do is just tell people about the goodness and the purity and the love and the the pure law of God. Like we quote the Psalms, right? The law is lovely. The law is pure. It is that, but it's only that to hearts who have been enlightened. It's not that to those who don't know Jesus. And so we need to start by saying when Jesus says judge not, he's saying eliminate all judgment from people who don't know Christ because ultimately what you're doing is creating either religious converts or religious followers, which Jesus is not interested in, right? He says he's not interested in external behavior modification. Or you're trying to sit on a throne of judgment where only God sits, which we'll get to this in a moment. But you and I, let me tell you something, friends. You may think you want to sit there. You don't. You don't, okay? In fact, we'll just, we'll just read why you might not want to sit there. In Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, it says this. Therefore, brothers, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet you do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So here's why we never want to sit on the throne of judgment. Because on the day where we all stand before Christ, all the Lord would have to do is play a video of our judgment against others juxtaposed against our behaviors that look exactly like the things that we are so vehemently judging. And then we become our own testament. We are testament against ourselves. Say, oh, you said this is what they deserve. But look, it's crazy because over here it looks like you do that very thing. It's like you said this is what they should do because they should pay, Right? This is the age-old, like, Nathan the prophet moment when he comes into David, and he says, this is what happened. I'll tell you a story. He tells the story. He said, what should we do to this man who had done this unrighteous thing? And David says, we should kill him. We should, we should bring him to the judgment, bring him into the stocks. And then Nathan looks at him and says, you're the man that I'm talking about. 
And Paul knows this, so he says we should not sit on thrones of judgment cosmically because we will only become judges against ourselves. We testify against our own sin when we do so. Now, here's the rub. When we say that no judgment at all should be engaged in with outsiders, then there's this muddy mess of yet the New Testament consistently and clearly is calling us that we ought to actually engage in certain levels of judgment within the church. And that when I use the word judgment, I know immediately there's a recoil. What I mean is this discerning truth-telling that's supposed to happen with the people of God. That ultimately we're called to be a people that submit to the gospel in such a way that we could look at each other and say, well, that's off. And it's not off because of my opinion, but it's off because of what Jesus has done and said. And we're supposed to actually engage in that. So that leads me to point number two, and that is this. We do speak the truth and love to one another with humility and patience. We do speak the truth and love to one another in humility and patience. So starting in verse number three, let's see what Jesus says next. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother, brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We are so prone to recognize the sins and shortcomings of others, and we do it way more frequently and specifically than our own sin. Jesus knows this. And so he calls us out on the hypocrisy that exists there. He says, why is it that we oftentimes try to do eye surgery with our friends who have sawdust in their eye and neglect to acknowledge the log that's jammed in our own, right? This is hyperbole, but it's kind of funny, right? Like it's a little bit funny. You can laugh in church, it's okay. Speck versus telephone pole, right? That's funny. Jesus is saying, why is it that we're walking around and everyone notices our own problem and we're trying to go around and ironically help other people? Not just saying you have a speck in your eye, but then we're coming over there and we're like maneuvering around our own log to try and get the speck out of each other's. It's craziness. And yet Jesus says, this is our bend, the beam and the speck. Think about the idea of beam and a speck, right? One of them, a speck in your brother's eye, might be uncomfortable, but it's not dangerous. If you had your child and there's a big log hanging out of his eye, that's dangerous. Go to the doctor, right? You're not just going to stand around and allow him to exist in that way. And yet we, not knowing the dangers of our own sin, the deceitfulness of our own sin, we treat it like it's no big deal while we raise up arms on the other's our friend's sin or our significant other's sin or people that we don't even know. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes we can get really worked up about the sin of other people who have no effect on us at all. If you want examples, just get online, right? Things that will never affect you, you're just so mad about it. How could they say that, you know? Who are they? I don't know, you don't know either, but it makes you mad, indignant even. And Jesus knows this about us. Our tendency is to notice other sinfulness quickly. And then we feel the need that it's just urgent to give them all the help they need, Right? We ought to know that we're in danger of being judgmental when this stuff starts to rise up in us. But we're not as keen to recognize it. And this is where it gets dangerous in the church, right? Because my point number two is that we are called to speak the truth and love to one another. But this is where it gets really muddy, right? Because oftentimes the way in which we think we're come, coming to speak the truth and love to people is really just we're, we're elevating our own personal opinions above the preferences of others and making them gospel truth. Does this make sense? It's where we don't center on the gospel, we just center on whatever it is that we think is right. Now, I could, I could go on and on about this, but you guys know what I'm, what I'm saying without me having to personally offend you. 
the things that you really hold dear because you're more tribal in your heart. And by that, I mean, you like, you create a tribe, whether it be a mommy tribe or a dad tribe or a workout tribe or a nutrition tribe or whatever it may be, and those things become elevated above and beyond the gospel so that now you have this judgment on other people. Like, why does she parent her kids that way? That's why they're hellions. And if I could come in and just help her, then everything would be better. If you didn't spare the rod, your kids wouldn't act that way. You know, here, I got one from my family. You know, it's like, that's <laughs> how I handle it, you know, whatever it may be. Like, if you, if you did schooling differently, you know, things would be better. If you just handled your finances differently, then you wouldn't have to be in that situation. And we all have our opinions, and we all have our thought process, and we elevate those above and beyond the gospel, which is, what is the, if the gospel's our priority, then first and foremost, we look at our own beam and our own eye and say, where is my sin that needs to be healed by Christ? Before I go, and I start to try to pick out the speck in others' eyes. Proverbs chapter 21, verse number two two says this every way of a man is right in his own eyes but the Lord weighs the heart so every one of us without me knowing you I know this about you you're usually right in your own eyes right it's why you argue no one argues and says well I don't I don't know if I'm really right I just vehemently want to yell at you no you argue because you think you're right human nature bends you to think that you're right in your own eyes it's interesting, isn't it? Like the, the younger of those among us see this a lot less. The older of those among us recognize this, go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's why your parents or your grandparents look at you and they chuckle when you make confident assertions. And it makes you more mad. Well, oh, they just don't, you know, they just don't know. I know and I know and I know. And they're just chuckling at you. You don't know what you know. Like I love it whenever people try to tell parents of teenagers what they're doing wrong and they don't have kids or they have little kids. Wait until they start talking back to you. They start having their own opinions, which are totally ill-informed. They're not even rational, and you got to parent the little one, right? It's no longer a little one. They're, like, strong and stuff. They, like, bow up to you, and you try not to go to jail, you know, that kind of stuff. But we're so confident because every man's right in his own eyes. But what does it say? The Lord weighs the heart. Notice what it doesn't say. You and I get to weigh the heart. You and I get to decide what motivations are wrong and right. You and I get to, get to decide what the secret things that are going on in people's heart. We don't get to say that because we don't know. Having said that, it doesn't mean that we can't come alongside and love, care, speak the truth. But we have to be really careful about our own motivations, don't we? Because even speaking the truth in love can tend toward judgment when we think we know things that just aren't facts. And we are hair-trigger judgment people. We see something, we see the fruit of it, we said it must be because, fill in the blank, you don't even know. You ever experienced this? Let's use the parenting analogy again. A child has terrible behavior in a restaurant, running around, ste- stepping on stuff, stepping on tables. You're just like, I would, I would handle that. Take that differently. And maybe it's your friend, so you see it over and over and over again. What you don't know maybe is that maybe they were diagnosed with something in which there's a, a, well, I'll use my example for my son, so it's not just pretending, uh, that my son was adopted. And therefore, spanking sometimes is just not the answer. It's just not the way. Here's another one. Time out for my son alone is absolutely awful for him because he feels excluded, which is the way that he was his whole entire life up until he met my wife and I. So time out just doesn't work. Time out's great. Put him in there. Close the door. Just let him cry it out in their sleep. For my child, if you let him cry it out in his sleep, he has night terrors and it's awful. 
So what happens is maybe you rush to judgment, you don't know the facts. You don't know actually the truth. But you rush to judgment as though it is the truth, and Jesus says, stop doing this. Because ultimately, what are you doing? On one end, if you try to do the cosmic judgment, you're trying to sit on God's seat as, as judge. But on the other end, when we do this civil judgment and we don't do it very uh, with the gospel at the center, we're trying to be omniscient, that we know everything. The truth is you don't know everything. In fact, when you come to speak the truth in love, you should come with this idea of I don't know everything. And I'm here to listen as much as I'm here to talk. Because I don't know the whole truth. Okay. So a few things that I think can be helpful. What is Jesus after here? Notice that he says, before you take the speck in your brother's eye out, handle the log. He doesn't say, don't, hand, don't, don't try to take the speck out. He wants you to care for each other like this. Jesus says, there's nothing wrong with you saying, I want to try and help you with the speck in your eye. What he's saying is that first and foremost, you have to be reflective and be repentant. So here's a few things. Number one, if we are to be effective and fruitful in taking the speck out of our brother's or sister's eye, we have to practice regular and active repentance about our own sin. Well, what does that look like? It means being humbled by your own folly and sin before you, before you address that in another. If we don't recognize our commonalities in sin, it's really hard to serve someone from a pedestal. How do you, how do you wash someone's feet when you're standing in a, on a, or sitting on a throne? It's difficult. Number two, we become sensitive to the deceitfulness of sin when we repent of our own because we realize, oh my gosh, if I can be deceived, maybe they're being deceived and they're not malicious. They're just being deceived too. Number three, we're gentle in our approach having just experienced the pain of object removal ourselves. See what I mean? When I was 12 years old, some of you know the story, some of you don't, I'll be quick. I was involved in a car accident, tragic car accident, and my, my eyelid was cut and it was cut off. And so they had to try to do surgically to repair it, to, to sew it back on. And I went through a number of surgeries. And one of the things that happened in the earliest days of the first surgery is they would have to try to medicate my eye because they wanted to try to conserve and save my original eyelid, which didn't work. I ended up having to have skin grafts later. So they wanted to medicate it. And one of the things they'd have to do is my family would have to hold me down on the chair and then they'd have to try to open my eye and put this medicine in it. And it was excruciating. I mean, I'm scream, I'm trying to pull out, but they got... All my family's holding me down, and they're putting this medicine on me. And it hurt like crazy. They hated it. I hated it. It was terrible. And you had to do it three times a day. Think about that. It's terrible, right? Breakfast, here we go. Lunch, here we go. Dinner, here we go. Jesus says here that there's something about going through that experience first that makes you gentle and sensitive when you try to come to someone else, and you know what they're about to experience. Because here's the thing. I, yes, there was... There was healing, and it was better for me to have gone through surgeries. But can I tell you something? They hurt still. So we can't just go in to speak the truth and say, listen, it's true, it's going to be good, don't worry about it, scalpel, and go for it. Just because it's going to be helpful doesn't mean it isn't going to hurt, and therefore we have to come with the sensitivity of one who's already been under the knife before. The other thing to make mention of is that sometimes we come in in truth-telling thinking that we have the scalpel, but really we're not that. There's a great physician, his name is Jesus, that's not you. You're just leading people to there and saying it's worth it to lay on the operating table. Maybe holding them down as they squirm, because you love them. But you're not skilled enough to grab, be the surgeon, right? And Jesus is saying this, that first we have to lay on the table before we encourage others to go that way. Because if not, we'll always operate with this strong-armed, harsh sense of superiority but it's the humbled, lowly of heart who can really 
find winsomeness in their relationship to others. We become patient with the response of others, having experienced the pain of soul surgery ourselves. And we become skilled in encouragement as well as admonition. Ask yourself that question. If you're like, yeah, I have no problem telling people like it is. It's one of my gifts. I'm a truth teller. I want to encourage you. Do you, do you. Are you as skilled in encouragement as you are in rebuke? Because if you're not, then what you have ultimately is you're really good at making cuts. You have no suture kit with you, though. So people bleed out all the time in relationships with you. Just heart surgery with a hammer. Now, I know there's a flip side here, right? It's when you don't have any truth. That's heart surgery with a noodle, right? Just your all love, no truth. You just beat around the bush always. You never actually say what needs to be said. You have to have both here. And I think Jesus is leaning there. I know he's leaning there, and the reason is because here he's going to give us with the moat in the beam or the speck in the beam, and then in verse 6, he's telling us how do we operate in healthy interaction of speaking the truth in love. If there is a judgment that Paul says should happen inside the body, Peter says the same thing, what does it look like? Well, first is it looks repentant. You know what, I'll just put the slide up. You guys can take some of these notes. I think this might be helpful. The first slide is how do we speak the truth in love to each other? So self-examination and repentance first. Before we go to speak the truth in love, first we allow the Spirit to speak the truth in love to us, right? Because if not, you're going in with your own preconceived notions, your own preconceived, and here's what I know about you and I is that the flesh tries to make us feel superior. But when self-examination or repentance take, we can come lowly and humble. Okay, next. Tone, relationship, and posture matter. Okay, when repentance, true repentance takes hold, what happens is your tone changes. Your tone changes from fix this to I'm coming alongside you. I'm also kneeling at the cross, right? Here's another one, relationship. Ask yourself before you come in and try to speak the truth in love, are you the person to even do this? If you don't know them, I want to answer that for you. You're not. You're just not. It's like, but no one else is going to do it. Stop being a Messiah. That's not you. Like Jesus, he called me for this purpose. I promise you he didn't. So relationship matters, and posture matters, the posture through which we come. Do we come, uh, I know the truth, and I'm, I'm here to you know, help you, this condescending posture, or do we come as, I'm here to serve you as a brother, and I, I even hate saying it because I know it stings, I know it's going to hurt, and you're probably going to lash back out at me, but I'm going to say it anyway, I love you. And lastly, how to speak the truth in love, uh, patience and wisdom regarding timing and context. So ask the questions when and where, Right? Why, why is that important? Well, and and where, you're like, where are you getting that out of the text court? Here's where I'm getting it. Jesus says if we repent first, right, we take the log out of our own eye. Let me ask you this question. Invol do you change clothes in public? Hopefully some guy's like, oh, man, he, he found me. You know, I'm like, come on, bro. <laughs> of course not. You don't want to be outed publicly because there's vulnerability and shame with that, right? You don't want Jesus to be doing soul surgery on you in front of everyone, so what do you want? You want the privacy, you want the intimacy, you want the care that, that someone actually will pull you aside and not say that publicly to you, right? Or that Jesus wouldn't do out you publicly. And then timing. Don't, don't you think timing matters? If you, if, you, if you don't, you probably aren't married. All right? Your wife just, you know, had a long day, changing the kids' diapers, everything. You know, laundry, all this stuff comes in, all this stuff all over her, you know, from the children, and then you're like, uh, 
I'm glad I got you here for this moment. I, I really want to talk about your heart a little bit. She's probably like, no, we will not be talking about, but we can't talk about your heart, you know. <laughs> right? Timing matters. Context matters. And here's the thing, patience and wisdom. Why do I use those two words? Because you got to be patient and not try to do it, handle things immediately. Some of us, we are, have a high need for resolve, and therefore we feel like, I have felt this way, therefore i got to fix this feeling. That's not it, because it's not all about you. It's not all about you. Well, they are affecting me. Awesome, you can learn to be more like Jesus. Your sin's constantly affecting him, and he doesn't just immediately address it, right? It's not always Ananias and Sapphira. They lied about giving, they died that day, okay? If it were, we'd all be dead. So thank God he's patient. And then, of course, with context, we use wisdom. Privacy always first. All right, next one. Listen well. We have to be as equally passionate about listening when we come to speak the truth in love. Because, once again, we don't know it all. And I'm not saying we don't know it all in the fact that we don't know the truth, like the truth changes. No, the truth doesn't change, but you know what does change? What's actually happening in this person's life that you don't know about. Which I think frames why things are going on the way they are. So we listen well. Okay, now, verse 6 gives us the flip side of this. I'm going to read verse 6 to you, and I think, tell me this doesn't seem like it's just totally out of place within this text. Verse number 6 says this, Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Doesn't that seem like it just doesn't fit? You know, in some of the older versions, that this, this portion was in its own paragraph. It's like even the earliest canonizers were like, don't know, but let's put it over here. We'll figure that out later. Because it seems so oddly placed. But not if you think of it in context when Jesus is talking about judgment and he's about to give us handles and tools for how we can actually interact with each other. On one end, he teaches us how we should speak the truth in love. Verse 6 is how should we receive the truth in love. Let's think about this for a second. Next slide. How to hear the truth in love. Believe the best in each other and don't assume malice. Jesus says there's going to be people. He calls them dogs and pigs. That's pretty intense. Check this out. He's talking about us. Sometimes we can act like dogs and pigs. <laughs> and here's what they do. They hear, they hear the precious holy truth of the gospel brought to them in love from a brother or a sister. And they trample it underfoot and then they attack the one who brought the word. And they say things like, you can't judge me. <laughs> right? You judgy. <laughs> and the reason I think first and foremost is because we assume malice in someone else. 1 Corinthians says love believes all things. Believes the best in someone. That's what love does, is that you believe that someone's coming to you with your best interest at heart. And this is when someone says something to you that's tough, you immediately assume, oh, that jerk. They just want to point out all my flaws. They just want to look good themselves. I'm glad you noticed the speck in my eye, because look at the log in yours, right? So Jesus encourages us here, rather than that, we believe the best Number two, you can go to the next slide. Listen for gospel truth beyond personal hurt. So here's what I can promise you. If someone comes to you and they talk about something vulnerable, can I tell you what the first reaction is going to be? To want to punch them. Right? Not, maybe not physically, maybe just internally. Okay? Some of us are more passive aggressive than that, right? Some of us are aggressive, you're a quarreler, okay? We don't even talk to you most of the time because we're scared. Um, 
then there's some of you who are more passive aggressive. It's like in your minds, you're already figuring out how I'm going to out this person later. Like, oh, yeah, you may receive it like humbly on the external. You're like, oh, I'm so glad you brought this to me, brother or sister. Oh, thanks so much for sitting down with me. Deep down, you're like, you wait until I get you back. You wait until I tell others what you have done, right? And the reason we do that is because we've been hurt because someone touched a wound. Another thing we might do is we try to redirect, right? We try to redirect it away from the gospel to a more religious thought. This is the woman at the well with Jesus. Remember, Jesus says, you know, where's your husband? And she says, well, I don't have a husband. He says, it's interesting you say that. I know you don't have a husband. Neither are the, you know, five or six other men that you've been with. You weren't your husband either. Her response is, oh, I perceive you are a prophet. (laughs) And then here's what she says. Rather than talking about the confession of the sin, she says, where do you think we should worship, on this mountain or in Jerusalem? She's a Samaritan. Total redirect, right? Why? Because someone touches the wound, get their hand off of it. Don't talk about it. Get away from me. So you either push someone away, you isolate yourself, or you redirect the conversation elsewhere. But if we can listen for the gospel truth, because here's what the gospel does. Yes, of course, it stings at first, but it's like medicine that heals. It stings, but it brings hope and healing to the heart. So we have to listen for gospel truth beyond the personal hurt of what the, also beyond the messenger who's imperfect. When anyone brings to you the message of the gospel, they are imperfect vessels. So you can't just say, well, who are they to say that? Listen to me, friends. If you can never hear from, if you can only hear from perfect people, there's no one you're ever going to hear from unless Jesus descends again. So eliminate the fact that it's an imperfect messenger and listen for the gospel truth in it. Next, avoid reaction and overreaction. Wait, listen, consider, and pray. Jesus says the temptation is going to be for us to trample and attack trample and attack so the opposite way that we hear someone's words is we wait we listen we consider we pray we don't react we don't overreact but we choose to operate in pace in patience consider what's being said consider what's being said by this person actually maybe try not to react or do anything with it for a few days okay i want to close with this thought why is the conversation of judgment so important in the first place? Well, I think because if we're not careful, sitting on a throne of judgment eliminates our opportunity to display the gospel. If we sit on a throne of judgment only, then we eliminate the Savior who rescued us from judgment. Okay? A couple of application points, and then I want to read a quote to you that it more, more, more fully explain that. Ask yourself the question this morning, are we judgmental or condemning in our relationships to our friends, our family, or others? Is it possible that in our thought process of just knowing the truth and bringing the truth, we're actually just sitting on the throne of judgment, and where do we need to repent? Or on the flip side, are we potentially abusing the grace of God and then abusing others in the, in the, in the response to their loving care for us? So like maybe we're acting kind of like the pig and the dog in this scenario. Where maybe people are bringing to us truth, but we just think they're judgy. And where can we repent to them? And where can we repent to Jesus? And then lastly, what does the gospel tell us about judgment? I want to read this quote from C.H. Spurgeon, and then we'll pray. Spurgeon says this, God is just. This gives us our terror at first. But is it not marvelous that this very same belief that God is just becomes afterward the pillar of our confidence and peace? 
If God be just, I, a sinner, alone and without a substitute, must be punished. We must be punished. There must be judgment. But Jesus stands in my stead, and he is punished for me. And now, if God be just, I, a sinner, standing in Christ, can never be punished. God must change his own nature before one soul for whom Jesus was a substitute can ever, by any possibility, suffer the lash of the law. This is why judgment's important. Because the way we demonstrate the gospel is to demonstrate the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's why we cannot rush to judgment to bring the penalty of people's error against them. It's why instead we gotta look constantly over and over and over again to extend grace, because that's the grace that was extended to us. It's why we can be patient and long-suffering. It's why if someone hurts you, you cannot immediately lash out, but you can trust in a God who loves you because Jesus has already done it for us. You see, the gospel is about a savior who's absorbed the judgment of God. It's not so that you and I could now jump back on the judgment seat, but so that we could bring a message of hope to people that they don't have to sit beneath judgment anymore, but that Christ brings hope and freedom and love. This is what we bring. I watched a documentary about Billy Graham that's on Netflix right now. I encourage you all to to watch. It's incredible. But one of the things that Billy Graham was famous for saying is, it's God's responsibility to judge them. It's my responsibility to love them. He was famous for saying this. Everywhere he went, all around the world, he said, I want to bring the hope of Jesus Christ to people. I want to bring the love of the gospel to people. And I want to bring the love of the gospel in light of a God who will judge the living and the dead so that I could point to Jesus and say, rather than sitting underneath the wrath of God, look at the love of God displayed for you on the cross. And this was Billy Graham's life. And so, friends, this is the invitation for us, each and every one of us, that we would not sit underneath the judgment of God because here's what, I can, here's what I know to be true. Those of us who don't embrace the gospel, it's why we're very judgmental people because we still feel like we're under the judgment of God ourselves. People that still feel the weight of the judgment of the Father on them, they're always gonna be very judgmental. People who have been freed from that weight, all they wanna do is bring freedom and life to other people. So I wanna encourage you this morning. You don't have to leave out of here with the judgment of sin on your shoulders when we come and take of the table of the Lord, you can now be reminded that you are free from all judgment in Christ. And therefore, you can extend that same freedom to others. You'll stand to your feet. I want to pray for us. God, thank you. Thank you that even when we look at the darkness, the sinfulness of sin, that it only for the believer brings more gratitude and worship because Jesus, you drank that cup of judgment dry for us. Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts to sing about it? Would you open our hearts to share about it? Would you open our hearts to constantly point to you and the love that you have for us? Thank you, Lord, that in your word it says that Jesus, you came not to the world to condemn the world, but to save it. Thank you, Jesus, that your posture and your disposition to us was not to condemn us rightly, but to save us graciously. And right now, I pray under the sound of my voice that we would experience that freedom together so that our marriages would not be judgment-ridden, our relationships would not be judgment-ridden, 
the people around us would not feel this weight around us when we're, when we're together with them, but they would feel a light freedom with us so that we can make the gospel unignorable in our community. We love you, Lord. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.